Father, we are grateful. We are thankful to you for all of your blessings. You are a good, good, good father. Every good and perfect gift comes from you. We thank you for this dirt, this lawn, this, this five acres that you've given that's paid for, that we can leverage to minister your word and your gospel. We thank you, Father, for all the neighbors that surround us and for the relationships that we've been able to develop and foster over the years. But most important, Lord, we're thankful for your people, the temple, the cathedral that you are building day by day. And Lord, you do that as we live in your word and your spirit applies your words to us. We thank you for the role of preaching as well, Lord. We pray that today we would be met by you in a powerful way in the words of this psalm. In Jesus' name, we pray. Amen. If you would take your Bibles out, hopefully everyone's got a Bible to, uh, to follow along. I just want to go line by line through this psalm. We're going to be in Psalm 96. Psalm 96, 1 through 13 is our text for the day. It's been said that uh, great victories are worthy of great songs. Great victories are worthy of great songs. In fact, I was doing some research on, on our national anthem and, uh, and the legacy of those lyrics. If you actually read all the way down to verse 4, pretty fascinating. It draws our attention to the Lord and to His grace in the victory that is celebrated in that song. Thinking of great victories in history past and this psalm is actually a song that celebrates a great victory. The psalm itself is derived from a psalm that David penned, and uh, you read about in 1 Chronicles as the ark is brought back into the city of David. Now, if you know a bit of the history about the ark, it was actually stolen by the Philistines. Remember how this? They, they took over Shiloh, and in the victory against Shiloh, they took the ark and they thought they would put it in their temple to Dagon. And guess what happened? People started dying. And there was a plague that began to move through the Philistines. So they got it out of the temple and they moved it to another city. And those people started dying. Then they moved it to another city. And those people, finally they said, enough already. And so they sent the ark back with sacrifices and offerings to try to rid the Lord's wrath against them for taking the ark. It took a little while, but David eventually brought the ark back into Jerusalem and established it there. And that was a huge day, a day of celebration. The day came to commemorate not only the return of the ark, but a great victory that was fought against the Philistines, the uh, kind of the nemesis of Israel in that time. King David sought the Lord at every step along the way. What should we do, Lord? Should we go up and fight? He says, no, don't go up this way. Go up this way. Come around their flank and you'll rout them. And sure enough, they did. And victory after victory after victory was accomplished against the Philistines. What amazes me as you begin to read the words of this psalm, however, is that King David, though he is in the forefront, even dancing before the Lord with great release and freedom, he is not making his joy and celebration about him. He is the king, but his joy is in the Lord. And his focus is to call people to the Lord, to make much of the Lord, not of, of the king, 
and his triumph. It's kind of refreshing to hear words like that in our day. To have a, a leader so absolutely humble before the greatness and sovereign rule of God that he would call the people to make much of him. It's a good example for us. David's heart was to point the glory of God's kingship over all the people in all the earth. So on your sermon notes, you'll see I've kind of broke into, broken into four sections this psalm. I just want to move line by line through it. The first section is called uh, Salvation and Singing. Salvation and Singing. This is what he says. Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Now, one of my favorite words in the Psalms is that first word, oh, oh. I love that that's included. It, it happens naturally, doesn't it? When you're praying, oh, Lord, I need help. Oh, Father, thank you. We, we say this all the time, but that they recorded this word captures the overflow of a satisfied heart, as I shared last week. This is overflow. This is unrestrainable joy that pours forth in words. Oh, and then he says this word. This is a command, by the way. This is a call to worship. Sing to the Lord. Sing to the Lord. You know, one of the things that often strikes me as, as fascinating is how the church sings. We gather together and we sing together. When in your life do you do that? We gather together, and when we're together as a family, we sing the praise of God. It's right. It's the ob obedience to this command. It's, it's all over the place. Singing is the expression of, of, of joy. And what Jonathan Edwards would say is that it actually it doesn't just express, it actually completes our joy. When we make much of God and we speak it out and sing it, our joy is, is, is grown larger. It's part of the way God wired us, is to be worshipers and expressing praise with our song together. You heard the, the harmonies, all the different notes, all the instruments, and, and all the voices. This, this is, as Pastor Vitali said, a taste of what is coming, friends. It's a taste of what is coming. He said, oh, sing to the Lord. And then he says this, a, a new song. And you have to stop and say, well, what's wrong with the old songs? Is he dissing on the hymns here? What's the deal? There's nothing wrong with old songs. We love old songs, don't we? Are songs only good if they're written uh, after a certain date? Some would say songs are only good if they're written before a certain date. Here's what I would say. A song is good if the lyrics that are in that song make much of God and stir your heart to sing. So why does he say then to sing a new song? Well, this is, I think, that, that capturing of that moment. We're celebrating a new experience of God's greatness, and it's worthy of a song. Stop. Write down what he's done. Put it into poetry Sing it, put music to it, and celebrate his work. You see, we have a God who never changes, but we experience him in new ways every day. And every experience of this God who is so infinite and great 
builds on the other. That's why we'll never have enough songs. That's why we'll never stop singing new songs and old songs. It's a wonderful thing. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Now, this is a fascinating thing. You can, you can hear this kind of as, they, as they're coming in the parade and, and it's loud and the people are, he's teaching them to sing this together. And so they're all singing and you just imagine thousands of people singing together. Is this just wishful thinking? Man, it says, it's almost like the whole earth is singing this song. No, this is a call to all the earth to join in the song. It's not enough that only in Jerusalem they sing. It, it, it should be throughout all of Israel and, and beyond. It should be all nations, all peoples. It's an evangelistic praise. That's one of the joys of, of meeting outside our walls is we're singing and, and saying, everybody sing, everybody join us. Join the song. Sing to the Lord, verse 2, bless or praise his name. His name, remember what that captures when we say the name of the Lord, what is that? It's, it's all the greatness of his godness. That's the name. The name of the Lord is the greatness or the glory of all of his godness. That which he is, his attributes, infinitely set on display. We can capture it all in his name. The name of the Lord is to be praised. And then he says, tell of his salvation from day to day. Tell of his salvation from day to day. We were saved in a moment in time. There was a time along the way where your dead heart saw Christ and he made you alive. That happened in a moment in time. Is it enough to sing of his goodness in one day or that week? It's never enough. Tell of his salvation from day to day. We never move on from the joy of our salvation. He saved us. Us. We are not worthy of this great gift. Day to day. I hate to do this to you, but I, I have to. This is the song that never ends. Now you're going to be singing that forever, aren't you? It's the song that never ends. This is the song of the gospel, the song of the saints. This is the song that we will sing throughout eternity. He saved me. He saved me. It's the song King David sang, anticipating the salvation of the Lord that we know through Jesus Christ. Let's move on to verse 3, proclamation and power. Here are some more commands to us. The command, declare or proclaim his glory among the nations, his marvelous works among all the peoples. What an interesting thing. We see this echo again. He's reaching beyond just those who are Israelites. He's reaching beyond just the city of David or Jerusalem. He wants even the Philistines. He said all, all nations, all peoples. He wants the entire population of the world to declare and proclaim the glory of God. Why? Why does he want this? Why is it not enough that only Israel sing and celebrate? I mean, I thought Israel is, they, they were the chosen people of God, right? Isn't that enough? 
Hmm. The answer is in the next verse. Why does he long for this? Why does he call us again to global praise? It's because the Lord is great. Verse 4. For great is the Lord and greatly to be praised. One line that has just lodged in my heart as I think about missions in evangelism is is a, a line by John Piper. He said, missions exist because worship doesn't. Think about that. One of the reasons that we go hard to the ends of the earth with the gospel is because there are places where worship is not happening. Worship of the true God, the living God, the God of all glory, who is greatly to be praised. Now, that doesn't make it a cold evangelism. We just want to make worshipers. But it does remind us of our goal. Our goal is not simply to speak words. Our goal is to see worship of Christ lodged in souls and hearts. Are you a worshiper today? He goes on and he says this, verse 4b. This Lord is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. He's to be feared above all gods. The gods of the peoples are worthless idols. That's not very politically correct to say, King David. I mean, that, that's a little insensitive. Some would say, well, King David, that's actually a little arrogant. I mean, you're, what you're basically saying is that your God is the God and everyone else who bows before anything else is bowing before something that's worthless. They're wasting their time. Someone might take offense to that. They might say that's insensitive. Is it wrong to say it this way? Is it wrong to say there is one God and every other pagan God is worthless? Well, it would be wrong if it wasn't true. But here's the distinction. It, it is true. And because it is true, it is not unloving. It's loving to say that. You're calling people, come away from, from throwing your heart against nothing. From looking and pinning your hopes and your future on nothing. Come to the God who is and bow before him. That's the most loving thing you can say to a generation that bows before that which is worthless. Chases after mirages in the desert when there's a, a whole wellspring of joy to be satisfied with in God. You know, what's interesting about idolatry, the gods of the peoples, the, the worthlessness of idols is it's not just out there that we find this struggle. We, too, who name Jesus, who call him Lord and Savior, we, too, have hearts that are fickle. And if we're not on our guard and careful, we'll find ourselves bowing down before that which is worthless, giving undue attention and value and focus and time and treasure to that which is fleeting and fading. 
what might that be? The Lord has a way of pinpointing it even now in a thousand different ways. He can draw your attention to that which your heart runs to, and you know that that person or that thing is worthless compared to the Lord. They might be a wonderful person. Maybe your spouse. It might be a great job. Maybe a family dynamic or time with your kids. Maybe a dream vacation or a new house or a faster car. But it is not God. And it makes a terrible idol. So come away from that and come to the the ever-living spring of joy and worship. Bow there, friends. Preach this to your heart every day. What do I have aside from you? There's nothing I desire. Mm. King David was so good at this, and yet his example reminds us of how easy it is to fall prey to our own hell-bent fallenness when he sinned with Bathsheba. He he walked off the path of life and light and worship and, and satisfaction in God, and he chased after worthlessness. And the Lord lovingly, graciously disciplined him. So we come now to verse 7. Let me read verse 6 again. Splendor and majesty are before the Lord. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. And then verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of the peoples. Ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. What are we saying in this? Well, first of all, ascribe is to acknowledge what is right and true and glorious and beautiful about God. That's one of the things I love doing is is considering his attributes. What is it that we know is true of you, Lord? You are good. You are faithful. You are all wise. You are all sovereign. You are working. You're not done. Your promises are true. And a thousand other things that the scripture reveals to us. And then take those and ascribe glory. Praise him. Lord, we praise you because you're faithful. We praise you because you love us even when we're unworthy. Ascribe to the Lord the glory due his name. In a sense, we're saying idols are not worthy and you are worthy. You are worthy. Glory due his name. He deserves the praise and worship of every single person on the face of this planet. Forever. That's how much he is worthy. He deserves the praise and worship and adoration of your life from beginning to end. And then forever because of the blood of Jesus Christ. Wow. Idols are worthless, but you are worthy. And then he goes on in verse 8 and he says this. Bring an offering before him and come into his courts. Bring an offering. This is an interesting thing. Why why is an offering on the mind of the psalmist as he writes this? Well, it's, 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 it's an offering that you bring when you come before him. Why would we need to bring an offering to come before him? And all of a sudden we're reminded not only is he worthy... Not only are idols not worthy, but we 
We are not worthy. Who are we to come into his presence? To, to, to come before the God of infinite perfection and holiness? To approach him? Who, who am I? Scripture again and again shows us a right understanding of who we are leads to these words. Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. I don't have any right to approach his courts, to come into his presence. But I bring a sacrifice, an offering. The function of the sacrifice, the offering to bring before the Lord was a reminder of blood. The blood that had to be shed. It was a substitute sacrifice. That blood should be my blood. But instead, I bring the blood of an, of an offering, a sacrifice, and I come and I set that before you, acknowledging I am not worthy, I deserve that, but because of your great love, you have commanded that this is enough. Of course, we know on this side of the cross, every single offering, every single sacrifice, every drop of blood that was shed, all pointed to who? Jesus Christ. He is the only way to come before the Father. He is the only truth and life. It is only by the blood that we could ever approach the presence of a holy God. Even King David understood as his limited view of the function of sacrificial system was operating back then. I cannot come but by the blood. And we know who, whose blood has purchased us from wrath and hell. And that is Jesus Christ. He gave his life. God sent his son to live in perfect obedience, something we none of us have done. He never sinned. And then he laid down his life willingly to take the cross and to, to, to have the Father place all of the wrath that I deserved on him instead of me because of love. He took that for me and he died and he was buried. And after three days, he rose in victory and the triumph of that empty grave says, it is finished, it is enough. You now through Jesus Christ can have access to the Father. You can be forgiven, set free. That is the good news of the gospel. When I was five years old, that is what changed my life. That is what shaped my life all the way back then. I'm not worthy to stand before this God. That's why verse 9 goes the way it does. Worship the Lord in the splendor of holiness. Whose holiness? His holiness. How could I ever obey the command except for by the blood of Jesus Christ? Tremble before him all the earth. That's a right response. Reverence and awe. Reverence and awe. Verse 10, say among the nations, the Lord reigns. Yes, the world is established, it shall never be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. You see the, the reign and rule of the king who is, King David is under the king of all kings, the Lord's kingdom, the Lord's reign. That is what God is displaying here through King David. 
That's why the celebration of the ark was the focal point of this parade and the joy. All of it pointed to Christ. Any earthly king is but a shadow of the true king. God reigns supreme. He rules supreme. He is Lord and he has no rivals. I just want to make this really, really clear. God has no rivals. Satan is a dog on the leash in the hand of a God who is all sovereign. And he gives only as much leash for that little Satan to run and do what he pleases. And no more. And when the time is fulfilled for Satan to be punished and done away with, he's done. That's not a rival to God. Now, to us, that's a real opposition. He prowls about seeking whom he may devour, tempting, stealing, killing, destroying. That might be our enemy here, but to be clear, he is not a rival to God. He is a purpose tool to accomplish God's all-sovereign plan, and when the time is fulfilled, he is gone. By the way, he's been disarmed. We have an enemy in Satan who is disarmed through Jesus' conquered cross. And so we come to anticipation and joy. Verse 11, let the heavens be glad. Let the earth rejoice. Let the sea roar. We can't hear it. We're just a little too far away. Wouldn't that be awesome if it was right here? Crashing on the rocks. Let the sea roar. And all that fills it, all those fish, the tiny little ones, the gigantic ones, and those super weird ones that are way deep. Let all the sea creatures roar. Let the field exult. Here we got a field. It's a little dry. And there's a few moles that like to live over here. Even the moles will praise the Lord. Every beast of the forest, every animal, they exist for his glory. Everything in it. Then the trees of the forest will sing for joy before the Lord. For he comes. You see their hands? You see their arms? In different places, the, the psalmist will see that and say, they're going to clap in praise. They're going to sing creation itself, created by our great and awesome sovereign God exists to serve one end and that is to glorify him that's the highest goal of all that exists and the celebration is on for he comes now this is an interesting reality that this is king david speaking about the coming of the king he's saying in a, in a sense the king is coming as he enters into the city of david with the ark so his arrival is being celebrated. Yes, there's victory to celebrate. But he's like, no, this is nothing compared to what's coming. You guys are clapping as I come into the city. When the king comes, these trees are going to be singing. And every animal will praise him. Anticipation and joy. And then he says this, and this is where it ends. For he comes, he comes to judge the earth. 
He will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his faithfulness. And you have to ask, well, I understand that creation is groaning for its redemption when the fullness of time is accomplished and the Lord comes and he says, behold, I make all things new. Yes, there's anticipation here, but how is it that sinners can anticipate the return of a righteous and holy judge? And that should give us pause. How, how could David, who knew his sin, be excited about coming judgment from a righteous king? Now, there's only one way. There's only one way. It's only through Jesus Christ that we can know peace with God. That we can have the offenses that we have committed against God by our sins, our trespasses, our idolatries, resolved and settled. It's only through Jesus that we could say, come, Lord Jesus, come. We're ready. We want to see you. And not fall on the ground or, as they say, hide in caves and say, rocks, fall on us, for he's coming. The judge is coming. What are we going to do? It's a complete, different kind of anticipation. It's not a dread. We don't fear wrath. God sent his son to be our sacrifice that we may have peace with him and long to see him. This is anticipation meeting joy, not dread. And it's ours today only through Jesus. Now, let me be extremely clear. I don't know all of you here today, but I do know this, and this is sure as the dirt that you are sitting on right now. If you are not clinging to Christ as your only hope in this life and the next, there is wrath coming for you when the judge returns. He is the dividing line. Blessing for those who look to him throw themselves completely on his mercy and grace, trust in his provision on the cross for their sins and are brought into relationship with God. If that is not where you stand, you are storing wrath up and the day that he returns will be the beginning of the worst series of events you have ever imagined and they will never end. So today, I plead with you, today, turn, confess your sins and lay them at the foot of the cross. Trust Jesus as Lord and Savior, and you will be forgiven in Jesus. There is life and joy and eternal reward, but it's only in Jesus. It's not in Buddha. It's not in Muhammad. It's not in any other worthless idol. It's not in a new car or more stuff. It's only in Jesus. He is our eternal joy, and he is the Lord of all majesty and glory. And so our response this morning, I just want to encourage you, join the song. Join the song. Now, some of you I know, I know Jesus is alive in you, and, and I know your heart is just overflowing with joy, and I get to stand next to you and hear you sing, and, and I love the voices of the redeemed. Sinners saved by grace, like me. So if, if you're here today and you're saying there's something happening and I didn't have it when I came, 
Make today the day that you trust Jesus and join the song. Accept the invitation of King David. All nations, all peoples, make much of King Jesus. For those who are singing already, many of you are. Live to invite others to join the song. Make it your mission in this life. Like King David, there were so many things he could have just focused on that would have been short-sighted, even prideful. But he blessed us today, and he blessed the entire world as he called the nations to come and join the song. The song of the redeemed. Missions exist because worship doesn't. He is worthy. He is worthy. Just call us to this. Are our neighbors worshiping Jesus this morning? Are your co-workers worshiping Jesus this morning? Are they worshipers of Jesus? There's an invitation that awaits. And God has strategically placed you to live where you live, to be a light in the dark, to work next to that person that you work to, to encourage that young mom that you're hanging out with, kids in school, those classmates that are sitting near you as school gets back together and gets going this fall. Invite all nations to sing the song of glory about the God who is. Let's pray. Lord, you are worthy. Oh, forgive us when we are giving our hearts to that which is worthless and ignoring the, the prize, the satisfaction of our soul that is ever before us in your glory. Lord, we see your glory everywhere we look. It's all around us this morning. We feel it in the breeze. We, we feel it in the warmth of the sun on our face. We can sense the trees as they are saying their, their, their call to worship with King David in the word. Father, make us a people who sing, not just when we gather, but the song that would echo all week long everywhere we go, that we would be a people like this who would, who would take seriously these commands of Scripture. And Lord, use us to invite others to do the same. That there would be many, even a year from now, as we would gather again, many more who would be joining in the song and singing to make much of you. For you are great and great to be praised. We pray Lord, that uh, these things would come to pass for your glory and that the nations would know the salvation of Jesus Christ and the joy of the ends of the earth. To that end, Lord, we pray all honor and blessing and glory and power be yours. We glorify you in Jesus' name. Amen.